Good morning. This is the doctor's letter. Sentence me to twenty years of boredom for trying to change the system from within. I'm coming now, I'm coming to reward them. First, we take Manhattan. Then we take Berlin. The Doctor's Letter, March 2018. This Doctor's Letter is by far the hardest I've tried to write. The first four more or less wrote themselves, based initially on personal events from the relevant months, and then on world events that triggered some thematic thoughts and reflections. I returned from travelling on the 26th of February, looking forward to some Irish spring weather, and was greeted with snow, the like of which last occurred in January 1982, when my elder son was born. So I ran away again in the middle of March to do some more examination work for the RCPI, this time in Muscat, Oman. I took the opportunity to extend the trip, by about 12 hours flying time, to Fremantle and Margaret River in Western Australia. Do you have to be mad to go to Australia for four days? Probably. But it was definitely worth the trip. Two days with wonderful and slightly crazy Joanna Robertson, who hosts Kidogo Art House in Fremantle, and recently ran a hugely successful commemoration of the transport of 62 Fenian rebels to Australia in 1867 on board the Hougoumont. The Hougoumont was the last ship to transport convicts to Australia and its unwilling passengers were deposited in Fremantle jail after 89 days at sea. Six of them were rescued in 1876 by the whaling bark Catalpa and brought to the United States. Joanna is a classic example of what I like to call the bee's wing business model. The bee's wing is not aerodynamically suited to flight, but no one has told the bee, so it just keeps flying. People like Joanna Robertson have these crazy ideas that obviously won't work, but they follow through regardless and oblivious to the objections and the reservations, and the results are invariably spectacular. One of Joanna's less clever decisions was lending me her car to drive to Margaret River, about 200 miles south of Fremantle, on the road to Cape Lewin, the southwest corner of Australia where the Indian and Southern Oceans meet. The trip to Kawaramup, just north of Margaret River and back, was uneventful. But on returning to Fremantle at 6pm on the evening of Wednesday the 21st of March, I decided to have one last swim in the sea 
before embarking on the 10pm Emirates flight to Dubai and Oman, where I had work commitments on the following three days before returning to Dublin on Sunday. As I emerged refreshed and relaxed from my swim, I noticed an object in the pocket of my shorts, which was the electronic key of Joanna's Mercedes. I'd heard horror stories of replacing these keys following loss or immersion, and the trip suddenly started looking very expensive. Of more immediate relevance, I was checked in on a flight leaving in three hours' time, and all my possessions except shorts and a t-shirt were locked in the murk. A retired police detective tried to fool the car into believing it had been in a crash by kicking it below the front bumper. Apparently this is a standard trick that sometimes results in the doors unlocking to release trapped passengers. Luckily, Joanna discovered a physical key on another keyring, which allowed me to get access to my stuff, and I changed in the car park and headed off in a taxi to the airport, leaving destruction in my wake. Joanna was generous and philosophical as ever, and the lucky winner in all this day battle is her daughter Tanga, who lives in Ireland and will shortly receive a brown envelope containing a contribution to her personal development. Jet lag, no time for that. I arrived in Perth at 6pm on St Patrick's Day and had no difficulty finding a few others to join me in the celebration. Obviously I didn't travel halfway round the world to drink Guinness, but I was introduced to something called Kilkenny, which passes for Irish beer in Australia, and I tracked the progress of the Irish rugby team completing the Grand Slam against the old enemy in Twickenham on my mobile phone. The friendly Australian girl behind the bar was thrilled to be presented with a headband sporting two miniature leprechaun hats on springs that I sourced in Dublin Airport on the way out. But four glorious days in Western Australia and four more in the historic kingdom of Oman failed to inspire in me a literary gem. And it was not until April the 1st, Easter Day, that I realised the theme for this month's doctor's letter would be human life and in particular, the beginning and the end of life. Here comes the sun, here comes the sun, I say it's all March 1958. Luckily, I don't have to rely on personal memories for each of the months that feature in the doctor's letter. The miracle of the internet has a plethora of sources that I can plagiarise, and the ones I tend to rely on are Wikipedia and a handy website called onthisday.com. On March the 1st, Samuel Alphonsus Stritch became the first American to be elected to the Roman Curia in the Vatican. On March the 2nd, Yemen announced it would join the United Arab Republic. On March the 11th, an American B-47 aircraft accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb from 15,000 feet on a family home in Mars Bluff, South Carolina, 
creating a 75-foot diameter crater. Fortunately, the bomb was without its nuclear capsule. On March 14th, the African National Congress Party, representing mainly the black population, was banned by the government of South Africa. On the same day, both the United States and the USSR tested nuclear weapons. On March 27th, CBS Labs produced the first gramophone record with stereophonic sound. On March the 8th, William Faulkner claimed that US schools had degenerated to become childminders. Faulkner was a Nobel Prize winning novelist from Oxford, Mississippi, who created the fictional Yoknapathaufa County and is best known for the novels The Sound and the Fury and As I Lay Dying. And on March the 5th, Andy Gibb, brother of Barry, Robin and Morris Gibb of the Bee Gees, was born in Manchester, UK. March 1968. As a 13-year-old secondary school student, politics were not the first thing on my mind. But there were some important developments brewing that would prove significant. On March 19th, students seized an administration building in Howard University, Washington, D.C. And a similar event happened on March 29th in Bowie State College. In France, on March 22nd, students rioted in Nanterre. Over the ensuing months, student protests spread all over France and gained worldwide attention not least because of the aggressive and violent response of the French police. On March 25th in Northern Ireland, members of the Derry Housing Action Committee disrupted a meeting of the London Derry Corporation to protest the lack of social housing in that city. This was one of the first instances of social unrest that would herald the violent deaths of over 3,000 people in the next quarter century in what are euphemistically referred to as the Troubles. During these years, we Irish living abroad experienced what it is to have a small number of our compatriots murdering people in the name of some purportedly sacred cause. Muslims the world over are feeling the same prejudice today. On March the 7th, the BBC broadcast the news in colour for the first time. And on March the 4th, Glenn Campbell won an Academy of Country Music Award. Born in 1936, Campbell was a popular singer, songwriter and TV host whose public experience of Alzheimer's dementia culminating in his death at the age of 81 on 8th of August 2017. Campbell had four wives and eight children. County, and I drive the main road, searching in the sun. 
1978. I have previously described some of the iconic teachers I had the privilege to know during my final year in medical school, in particular Dr. Jerry Geerty in Baggett Street and Mr. Vincent Sheehan in Drogheda. There were many others, of course, and they will appear from time to time in future doctor's letters. On March the 6th, Larry Flint, publisher of what would now be considered a mildly pornographic magazine, The Hustler, was shot and crippled by a sniper in Georgia. The American gun laws have been an eternal political football, and no American president has succeeded in facing down the might of the National Rifle Association, probably the most powerful single lobby group in American politics. In a typically American and typically Trump-esque response to several gun massacres in American schools, it has been proposed that American school teachers should be armed in a rare glimmer of good sense, American school teachers have wisely resisted this suggestion. American conservatives and pious reactionaries in general have a remarkable tendency to meet anything they regard as evil with violence. Examples include minority ethnic groups, immigrants, abortion and non-Christian religions. It is a statistical fact that the single most significant risk factor for being shot is owning a gun. On March the 8th, BBC Radio 4 broadcast the first episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. This radio series became a cult that spawned five books selling 15 million copies in Adams' lifetime. Although we had a few other flashes of fame such as cameo roles in Monty Python's Flying Circus, Adams is in essence the epitome of the one-hit wonder. Douglas Adams was born on March 11, 1952, and died on May 11, 2001, aged 49, from myocardial infarction complicated by a cardiac arrhythmia, probably ventricular fibrillation. Had he been treated with a defibrillator, he would almost certainly have survived. Myocardial infarction became recognised as the most common cause of sudden death in the 1950s as coronary atherosclerosis due to poor diet, obesity, smoking and lack of exercise started to appear in epidemic proportions. American soldiers killed in the Second World War had fairly clean coronary arteries at autopsy. Those killed in Vietnam were already showing signs of coronary artery disease in their 20s. The classic heart attack is a myocardial infarct caused by blockage of a coronary artery when an atherosclerotic plaque ruptures and a blood clot forms on its surface. It's reasonable to suppose that losing the blood supply to a large proportion of heart muscle might be fatal, but some were dying with blockage of relatively small vessels. With the advent of electrocardiography, ECG, it was realised that some, if not most, fatal heart attacks were caused not by massive necrosis or infarction of heart muscle, but by heart rhythm disturbances that cause cessation of coordinated heart muscle contraction. During the late 19th and early 20th century, physiologists discovered that normal heart rhythm could be restored to fibrillating muscle by the application of electric shock. 
1957, Frank Pantridge in Belfast developed the portable defibrillator that now forms the basis for cardiac resuscitation and advanced cardiac life support. Pantridge's defibrillator was invented specifically for the treatment of ventricular fibrillation complicating myocardial infarction. It is extremely effective in this situation and by extension entirely ineffective in other causes of sudden death. Sadly, the historical basis for the defibrillator has been forgotten and now everyone who dies in hospital must end their life with multiple attempts at venipuncture, endotracheal intubation, singed flesh and fractured ribs unless a decision not to resuscitate has been made in advance. Everyone's understanding of modern medicine is that its prime goal is to save life. Over the years we have come to appreciate that quality of life is as important as longevity, that prevention is better than cure, that the end of life must not necessarily be postponed at all costs, and that the ending of life is a particular medical situation that merits its own expertise and special resources. Thus, the speciality of palliative care was spawned and the hospice movement grew. If we now accept that relief of distress towards the end of life is not only desirable but essential, we must then confront some tricky questions that border considerations of ethics, philosophy and religion. What if the relief of pain actually shortens the patient's life? What if the patient requests withdrawal of treatment? What if the patient requests treatment that we know will be futile? What if the patient requests active measures to end life? Assisted suicide and the procurement thereof is a criminal offence in Ireland. Independent Irish TD John Halligan has attempted to introduce a private member's bill in the Dáil to legalise assisted suicide and a number of cases involving those suffering with chronic neurodegenerative diseases have attracted media attention. Is it possible to have a dogmatic approach to these dilemmas? For what it's worth, my own position is clear. I will not be involved with any medical intervention, the direct and express intent of which is to end life. This does not mean that I will not, and have not, been involved with treatments primarily aimed at the relief of pain or distress, an incidental effect of which may be to shorten life. Is this distinction semantic? I don't believe so. In any case, it's a principle that served me well in 40 years of clinical practice, where the only difficulty I faced with decisions not to resuscitate was not considering them or not making them soon enough. On March the 1st, 1978, Charlie Chaplin's coffin and remains were stolen from a Swiss cemetery. As well as struggling to manage the end of life, we also continue with taboos about death generally. Our views on death are confused with real or imagined religious superstitions, which are surprising given that Christian teaching tells us that once the soul has departed the body, all that's left is flesh and bone. One of the healthier Irish traditions is the funeral wake. On the day before the funeral service and the burial, the deceased lies in an often open coffin, usually on the dining room table, while relatives, friends and neighbours and in rural Ireland, a smattering of local politicians, visit to pay their respects. Condolences are offered over tea, whiskey and sandwiches, while the departed is remembered in anecdote and story 
that celebrates their life as well as mourning their death. Between the 15th and the 21st of March, Israel made another military foray on one of its neighbours, this time northward into Lebanon. And on March 17, 1978, the tanker Amoco Cadiz spilt 1.6 million gallons of oil off the French coast. This was a spectacular environmental disaster, but much less damaging than the gradual accumulation of oil-derived plastics that now choke the world's oceans. Time to start burning plastic as well as oil, instead of shipping it halfway round the world to have it dumped in an ocean. Our pathetic hand-wringing attempts at recycling have been a conspicuous failure. Goldenrod and the 4-H stone The things I brought you when I found out you had cancer off the bone Your father cried on the telephone And he drove his car into the Navy Yard Just to prove that he was sorry Pressed up against your shoulder blade I can see what you were reading All the glory that the Lord has made And the complications you could do without When I kissed you on the mouth March 1988. On March the 1st, Iraq launched 16 missiles on Tehran in Iran in a war that continues to this day. In Northern Ireland, the troubles were in full swing. On March 16th, three mourners were killed at a Catholic funeral by a Protestant sniper. Three days later, two British soldiers were lynched by a Belfast mob. On March the 6th, three IRA suspects were shot dead in Gibraltar by British SAS officers. On March the 10th, Prince Charles narrowly escaped death in an avalanche at the Swiss ski resort of Klosters. On March 15th, NASA announced that it had observed degradation of the ozone layer that filters out ultraviolet light from the sun. The ozone hole was particularly pronounced over the poles and was implicated in increased incidence of melanoma in Australia. As a result of all this, sunbathing started going out of fashion and the healthy tan started being referred to instead as sun-damaged skin. As one with typically Celtic skin, I've always been wary of overexposure to the sun and was never one for sunbathing or sun holidays. However, I think this was more because I don't do holidays rather than because I was avoiding the sun. As I've stated previously, I love travel, but for me travel is all about people. I realise by now this statement is becoming a mantra. Some friends recently announced they were going on a trip to South America. Who do you know in South America? I asked. No one. We're just going for a holiday. I realise there are many beautiful sights worth seeing in South America, and I have an ambition to visit there. But I have a feeling when I do visit, 
it will be primarily to see people, not places. For the same reason, I've never been on the continent of Africa, and I realise I'm missing powerful visual and cultural experiences. Incidentally, playing golf in South Africa is not what I have in mind as a powerful cultural experience. Even the wildlife in safari parks strikes me as somewhat contrived. But as I have yet to visit South America and Africa, I will suspend judgment. I do have invitations to visit Cairo, Khartoum and Addis Ababa, but these invitations are from people, not travel agents. Despite my pale skin, I love the sun. I love the light and the warmth. I love swimming in the sea and being able to come out of the water and dry off without a towel. I love sitting with my back to the sun and reading for half an hour in the late afternoon when the sun is getting low and the ultraviolet rays that refract more than the infrared ones do are already attenuated so they don't burn. And for the same reason I love to swim in the morning before the crowds arrive. In the middle of the day I prefer the shade of the poolside bar and the refreshment of a cool beer. The ozone hole was caused by the release of chlorofluorocarbons into the atmosphere. These chemicals were the principal ingredients in aerosols, a convenient invention to produce a fine spray or mist for deodorants and dis domestic sprays of all kinds. They are also the coolant liquid in fridges and air conditioning systems. The story of CFCs and the ozone hole is a rare example of the human race actually cleaning up the planet it's attempting to destroy. As a result of concerted international action, CFCs have been replaced in most aerosols and the manufacture and maintenance of fridges and air conditioning systems is tightly regulated. So the ozone layer is now recovering. We talk about saving the planet. Of course, the planet doesn't care what we do. It'll still be there after we've exterminated our own race. We humans have only been around for about one or five million years, depending on which brand of anthropology you subscribe to a twinkling in the eye of celestial time. But we have other aspects of our act to clean up if we are to save our own species. On March 13th, Bill Cosby won the US People's Choice Award for the most popular TV personality. It turns out that Bill Cosby, like so many lovable and famous celebrities, was not such a likeable character when it came to his relationships with women. Since Cosby fell from grace, the lives of many others have come under scrutiny, some unfairly and tragically. Next month I'll look at 21st century attitudes to sexuality and the commoditization of sex. I'm just glad that my own discovery of sexuality was gentle and mysterious. Nothing like thinking you've invented something yourself, rather than imitating some sexual athlete on an internet porn site where not only sex but women themselves are treated as commodities. In March 1988, I was job hunting. By today's standards, I was already overtrained as a specialist in respiratory and internal medicine, having spent two years in basic specialist training, one year in high intensity general medicine, four years in respiratory medicine, and two years in full time research leading to an MD degree. But there were no consultant jobs in Ireland. So I made a decision that I would not emigrate for a second time and drag a young family with me. So I set about applying for another registrar post. In 1988, there was a formal senior registrar programme in medicine, but the training body and the profession were both ambivalent about its value. 
Virtually all Irish medical specialists did most or all of their training abroad, and local candidates for consultant posts were at a major disadvantage. However, a senior registrar post would be a promotion and would offer a logical if somewhat superfluous rounding off of my specialist training. Unfortunately, the interviews for the senior registrar programme, which were coordinated by the RCPI, happened after the round of interviews for other registrar posts. There was only one senior registrar training post being appointed that year, and although I was probably the strongest candidate, I was not the only one. So I looked at other options, including a very good registrar post in gastroenterology at St Vincent's Hospital, where I was already based. In due course, I was interviewed first for the St Vincent's gastroenterology post and later for the senior registrar programme at the Mater Hospital north of the River Liffey. I was offered both posts and chose the latter, and I would say more obvious choice. But because I'd been offered the Vincent's post first, my decision to turn it down was viewed almost as a snub to the hospital and a personal affront to the prospective trainers. This attitude is patently unfair, but it prevails to this day. Training bodies are still amazed that doctors completing their intern year and contemplating a career in general practice might also apply for a basic training programme in general medicine in case they were unsuccessful with their preferred choice. But because the same training bodies are incapable of communicating and collaborating with each other to coordinate and synchronise their interviews, dozens of young trainee doctors every year are faced with the requirement to accept a place in one programme knowing they will withdraw if they're later offered their first career choice in another. On March the 21st, 1988, the Country Music Award went to Hank Williams. Your cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep but sleep won't come the whole night through your cheating heart will tell on you when tears come down like falling rain you'll toss a March 1998. During this month, I spent two weekends working as a locum consultant physician at St. Columkill's Hospital in Lachlanstown, a South Dublin suburb just north of Bray and just north of the Dublin-Wicklow border. I'd been invited to do this work by Dr. John Fennell, a man I knew slightly and who was to become a colleague and a good friend for the next 20 years. There were, in 1998, a man just two consultant physicians and who was to become a colleague and a good friend for the next 20 years. 
There were, in 1998, just two consultant positions at St Column Kills, which was, and still is, a fairly typical small general or county hospital with 100 beds, two physicians, two surgeons and a proportionate number of medical and other staff. Despite having a Dublin postal address, St Column Kills is effectively the general hospital for County Wicklow. The patients are an eclectic mix drawn from the wealthy Dublin suburbs of Dorky and Killiney in the north and darkest Ockram, Carnew and Tinnahili in the south. As I wrote last month, I enjoyed these weekends. The clinical medicine was fairly pure and not encumbered with excessive bureaucracy and professional jealousy, as can be the case in larger institutions. And the cash came in handy with a young family, supported otherwise only by a university lecturer's salary. In small acute hospitals, most of the cases are straightforward and require surprisingly little complex care. Indeed, most patients in the emergency departments of large Irish hospitals could be more than adequately cared for in smaller hospitals or in the community if the resources were appropriately redirected. But there were moments of excitement. On my first weekend, I admitted a 15-year-old girl with meningococcal septicemia. This is a frequently fatal infection requiring sophisticated multidisciplinary intensive care. I called for an ambulance to transfer the patient to a larger hospital with the relevant expertise and resources to deal with the multi-organ failure that I feared would develop and which did indeed follow in the ensuing days. Having dispatched the patient, I called the hospital to advise that the case was en route. It turned out I had committed a major sin of breach of protocol by not having the patient formally accepted by the receiving hospital before arranging the transfer. This despite the fact that the receiving hospital was formally affiliated with St Column Kills and 10 minutes away by ambulance. Anyway, I accepted the tongue-lashing and knuckle-wrapping the intensive care consultant delivered by phone half an hour later and before he had seen the patient. The fact that the patient survived, just, was some consolation. On March the 4th, the US Supreme Court, in the case of Oncal versus Sundowner Offshore Services, ruled that federal laws against sexual harassment in the workplace also apply when both parties are the same sex. We hear a lot about sexual harassment nowadays, and accusations are made about incidents that occurred decades ago. Some think the pendulum of political correctness has swung too far, and some correction is warranted. What is definitely needed is some sensitivity and some education on how interpersonal relationships should be conducted. And this instruction needs to come from people who have experience of successful relationships, not just the religious and the divorced. On March the 6th, the British Union flag was flown for the first time over Buckingham Palace. Until that date, the only flag flown over the palace was the Sovereign Standard, which is displayed when the monarch is in residence. The British royal family had been severely criticised at the time of the death of the Princess Diana, wife of Charles, Prince of Wales, in a car crash in September 1997 for failing to fly the Union flag at half-mast over Buckingham Palace. This at a time when virtually every public building in the country and many private ones were festooned with flags and flowers in what is now routinely referred to as an outpouring of grief. The death knell for Diana coincided exactly with that for the traditional British stiff upper lip. It's nowadays the norm for the British to go into elaborate displays of grief over the death of the family cat, 
and the word devastated has become devalued by overuse. On March 23rd, actor Jack Nicholson won an Oscar for As Good As It Gets. Nicholson is another great actor and celebrity who turns out to have a rather unattractive attitude to women. On March 24th, two students aged 11 and 13 opened fire on teachers and students at Westside Middle School in Jonesboro, Arkansas, killing five and wounding ten. On the same day, a tornado in Dantan, India, killed 250 and injured 3,000. On March 26th, in Ovad Buwaicha in Algeria, 52 people were killed with axes and knives, 32 of them infants under the age of two. And on March the 5th, singer Mariah Carey and music producer Tommy Motola divorced after two years of marriage. March 2008. In March 2008, I formally took possession of the house where I now live and where I will hopefully, in due course, end my life. The house was built around 1720 and I'm gradually unearthing its history. It is built in the grounds of the Whaley estate, owned by the Whaley family of whom the most famous and notorious was Buck Whaley. Thomas Buck Whaley, was a member of the House of Commons and a gambler. He also loved adventure. While dining with William Fitzgerald, Duke of Leinster, at Leinster House, Whaley indicated his intention to travel to Jerusalem. The conversation led to a series of bets totalling £15,000, about €4 million Euros in 2018, being offered that Whaley could not travel to Jerusalem and back within two years and provide proof of his success. It was reasoned that as Jerusalem was at that time part of the Ottoman Empire and had a reputation for violence and banditry, it would prove too dangerous for travellers and it was therefore unlikely Buckwhaley would complete the journey. Whaley embarked from Dublin on the 8th of October 1788 with a retinue of servants and a large stock of Madeira wine. He sailed first to Deal in Kent where he was joined by a professional skipper, Captain Wilson and they continued to Gibraltar, where a party was held in their honour. Another military officer, Captain Hugh Moore, joined the party 
and they sailed for Smima, now Izmir, in Turkey. Here Wilson was forced to withdraw due to the development of rheumatic fever and the remaining pair journeyed overland to Constantinople, Istanbul, arriving in December. Following an introduction from the British ambassador in Constantinople, Whaley obtained a permit to visit Jerusalem. At Acre, Whaley met the Wali of Acre and Galilee, Ahmed al-Jazar, known as the Butcher, who took a liking to Whaley and paraded his concubines for the visitors. With al-Jazar's support, Whaley reached Jerusalem on the 28th of January 1789 and obtained a certificate from the superior of the convent of Terra Sancta to prove that he had indeed reached his goal. Whaley stayed in Jerusalem for a little over a month before returning to Dublin overland, arriving back in the summer of 1789 to great celebration and to collect his winnings. The trip had cost £8,000, leaving a profit of £7,000. One of Whaley's tenants, a man called Faulkner, lived in my house and farmed the land around it. It is rumoured that Faulkner won the house from Whaley, his landlord, in a card game and named it after himself. Buck Whaley also established the Hellfire Club in the foothills of the Dublin mountains, which was a centre for gambling and general debauchery. He lost and recovered his wealth before dying, probably from rheumatic fever, aged 33 in the town of Nutsford in Cheshire, while travelling from Liverpool to Dublin. On March 13, 2008, the price of gold on the New York Stock Exchange hit $1,000 for the first time. Gold is the classic refuge for investors in times of uncertainty. In March 2008, Lehman Brothers were beginning to realise that subprime mortgages were a poor investment, specialising as they did in lending money to people who had already demonstrated their inability to make the repayments. Lehman filed for bankruptcy on the 15th of September 2008, and a few wealthy people lost a lot of money. In Ireland, another financial monolith with a rather shorter provenance, Anglo-Irish Bank, also became insolvent. The Irish government decided not to allow Anglo to take the same route as Lehman, and as a result a few wealthy, mainly German people, remained wealthy, and a lot of poor Irish people paid the price, some with their lives. On March 17th, musician Paul McCartney divorced Heather Mills on grounds of unreasonable behaviour. And on March 21st, Marcia Garces divorced comedian Robin Williams due to in irreconcilable differences. And on March 19th, 2008, Arthur C. Clarke, author of the science fiction novel and film 2001 A Space Odyssey, died aged 90.
March 2018. I escaped for a week in the middle of March, four days in Australia and four days in Oman. The weather before I left was the heaviest snow in 40 years, and the weather after I returned remained cold and wet. Even now in early April there's not a blade of grass growing, as my farming neighbours would say, and you can't put a tractor on the land. The other newsworthy theme that is starting to build, and will undoubtedly and deservedly preoccupy us for the next two months, is the government proposal to remove the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution by referendum in May. Article 43.3 was voted into the Irish Constitution as the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution by referendum in 1983. It recognises the equal right to life of both an unborn child and the mother of the child. There are a number of problems with the Eighth Amendment, not least of which is the fundamental one, that the place for regulation of abortion is in legislation, not in the Constitution. The Constitution is a broad framework that directs the governance and government of the country. The whole point of having a democratic republic is that we can elect representatives to make our laws for us. If, as some say in relation to the upcoming referendum and the legislation that will have to follow the removal of Article 43.3, we can't trust politicians to make good law on abortion, then we need to change our politicians, not the Constitution. For the record, I regard myself as pro-life and I will be voting to repeal Article 43.3, the Eighth Amendment, in the upcoming referendum. When I say I am pro-life, I mean that I do not believe it's right to abort a healthy foetus. I do not believe in euthanasia or assisted suicide. And I will not bear arms with the intent of killing another human being, even in self-defence. But more important is not what I believe is right, but what right have I to tell others what they should believe? In particular, what right has a middle-aged man, or a middle-aged woman for that matter, to tell a woman who finds herself unintentionally or unfortunately pregnant how she should proceed? I have no such right, nor have I the right to limit her options by legislation. So I will vote to repeal the Eighth Amendment, and I will continue to engage with any unfortunately pregnant woman who may ask my advice or seek my help by telling her that it is her decision and that I will respect her decision and do my best to give emotional and practical support, whatever that decision. The other landmark document that has influenced Irish attitudes to human reproduction in the last 50 years is the papal encyclical Humanae Vitae, written by Pope Paul VI and dated 25th of July 1968. An encyclical is a circular letter originally sent to all the churches of a particular area in the ancient Roman church. I reproduce here the exact text of the introduction to Humanae Vitae. Encyclical letter Humanae Vitae of the Supreme Pontiff Paul VI to his venerable brothers, the patriarchs, archbishops, bishops and other local ordinaries in peace and communion with the Apostolic See to the clergy and faithful of the whole Catholic world, and to all men of goodwill, on the regulation of birth. Honoured brothers and dear sons, health and apostolic benediction. It would appear this encyclical is not addressed to women, and the introduction would apply it has nothing to do with them. Of course, the Church, 
not only the Catholic Church, but all religions and all philosophies, have the right to a view or a position on any or all facets of human behaviour. But one must question whether theoretically celibate men are best placed to advise women on management of their fertility and their sexuality. And finally, a poem. A Psalm of Life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Tell me not in mournful numbers Life is but an empty dream For the soul is dead that slumbers And things are not what they seem Life is real, life is earnest And the grave is not its goal Dust thou art, to dust returnest Was not spoken of the soul not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end or way, but to act that each tomorrow find us farther than today. Art is long and time is fleeting, and our hearts, though stout and brave, still, like muffled drums, are beating funeral marches to the grave. In the world's broad field of battle, in the bivouac of life, be not like dumb-driven cattle, be a hero in the strife, Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. Footprints that perhaps another sailing o'er life's solemn main, a forlorn and shipwrecked brother, seeing shall take heart again. Let us then be up and doing, with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labour and to wait. So far away does 
the doctor's letter we heard. First we take Manhattan by Leonard Cohen. Here Comes the Sun by The Beatles. An Everlasting Love by Andy Gibb. Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. Casimir Pulaski Day by Sufjan Stevens. Your Cheating Heart by Hank Williams. This Year's Love by David Gray. Also Sprach Zarathustra by Richard Strauss played by the Berlin Philharmonic. Without You by Mariah Carey and So Far Away by Carol King. My name is Jeff Chadwick. This has been The Doctor's Letter. The Doctor's Letter is written by Jeff Chadwick and produced by Gavin Hennessy. You can read The Doctor's Letter at www.thedoctorsletter.com Join us next time for the next Doctor's Letter. Good night. Far away. Yeah.